Today on Point 01, Aaron Cummins is down with Stephen Birkenfeld, founder of Ecotopia Consulting. Stephen is a lifelong climate advocate and member of organizations such as the Sierra Club. However, he spent much of his career working with Lehman Brothers. During the fallout from the 2008 financial crisis, Stephen came to reflect on the state of climate and business and decided to channel his powers into galvanizing the clean tech movement into a position to change the world. In this conversation, Aaron and Stephen talk about how close the world came to an economic abyss in 2008, how the Great Recession sowed the seeds for the current sustainable business movement, and why he feels consuming dystopian sci-fi is a great way to combat complacency in climate change. Without further ado, here's Aaron and Stephen. Uh, hi, everybody. This is Aaron Cohen with the Point One podcast, and I'm joined today by Stephen Birkenfeld who is an unusual guest for us on the Point One podcast in the following way. Steve is someone I hang out with like every month. Uh, we've never, of course, like so many new relationships during the pandemic period. We've never met in, in person, but I, I feel like you're a friend and you are an advisor uh, to Therma. You've been a very valuable advisor uh, to Therma. I don't think it should be lost on anyone that Stephen was pushing us in a direction that led to us raise a lot more capital last year. Um, Therma being the parent company of, uh, of the producers of the Point One podcast. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. I, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was to really take a look at the historical lens and, and where we are today. Because, as you know, what we do at Point One is we try and talk to members of the climate economy, particularly investors and entrepreneurs and executives who are shaping, you know, our response to global warming. And we, and we link those things to sustainability and profitability being the same force, right? Like if we can get profitability for companies and improve the sustainability of their operations, well, now we have a, a shot at this thing. So I want you to go back um, really to the beginning of your career and tell us when, uh, the, the climate problem first really came onto your radar screen. Uh, yeah, that's actually a really interesting question for me. Because I remember back in the 90s, and I don't have the specific dates, but easy enough for us to find out, when I was at Lehman Brothers and working with their merchant banking team, Lehman Brothers actually acquired Peabody Coal. I don't know. Our merchant banking business owned Peabody Coal, which was the largest coal company in the world, right? C O A L Coal, a coal company. Peabody Coal, the coal company. Now, you know, we're talking about oil and electric vehicles and getting off of, of gas, you know. I don't like to call it natural gas, but that's how people refer to it. Um and Nobody's advocating for more coal. But back in the 90s, we bought this large coal company, Peabody. I, I could go around my house and find, you know, the Toomey luggage and things with Peabody coal on it as mementos of all the deals that we did. Because we owned it, took it public, we did follow-on offerings. And all through that period, nobody thought about, should we really be invested in coal, she would really own a coal company. Um, you know, sustainability, climate change, all of those things, it wasn't on anybody's radar screen. Right. So we're so, not talking about, we're talking about 30 years at the most. At yes, the most. Right, right. That, Maybe less say, than let's that. Let's say 25 years, right? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't at all anything anybody considered. And to say, have we progressed? Have we moved forward? There isn't a chance that owning a coal company in a merchant banking type of investment by one of the major banks today would get even a second of consideration, right? Nobody would even consider doing that because the court of public opinion would be so condemning on that bank for being involved in it. Right. So that's going in, in 25 years, sort of like, like, I'd say, you know, the first third of my career into the next two thirds so far, uh, it wasn't even considered. I don't think it became a significant issue until the early 
multiple as well on valuation. So I know all about that that trend. Um, it, 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 I mean, you have a quite interesting story that most of the people who listen to our podcast, even are, are, are college students, um, you know, or just out of college. These are, we push heavily into the, you know, who wants a job in the climate space as a, as a part of our audience. And I, I have to think they'd be interested in what it was like to be at Lehman, for you to talk about like what it was like to be at Lehman as it, and, and how quickly you landed on the other side, such an unusual story, how you thought about that moment personally, you had been in a really a extraordinarily successful person who had been at the firm for 20 years, 20 years. And what, what, talk a little bit about that emotionally, because it's, it's gotta have been, and you've had some distance, so it's probably easy to talk about, easier to talk about now. Yeah, and it was, it, relatively easy to talk about at the time too i i don't know if people appreciate how close we came after the fall of lehman to have the whole market crash and at the time i was less worried and focused on lehman than what might happen to like the world economy Right. And I felt either it was going to be, because we pretty quickly got acquired by Barclays, so there was going to be an opportunity there or an opportunity at the Lehman Estate. There was plenty that I thought I could do, but I really felt like people didn't understand how close to the edge we got. Um, and if the government hadn't done some things that were unprecedented, the whole thing might have collapsed. And, and you remember, you know, the U.S. government came in and said, we're going to guarantee the debt of every financial institution. Make after it a, after a, Lehman. After so Paul, Lehman. Paulson changed his mind that then Secretary of Treasury Paulson, uh, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, then changed his mind after Lehman collapsed. Yeah, I think that amount of time, right? They had no understanding whatsoever what the bankruptcy of Lehman would do. And so I was right in the middle of it, right? Front row seat. That's not even a fair way to say it because I was directly involved. You were on the in court. All of the discussions that were going on. And, and the government at the time completely misunderstood and mishandled it. We actually told them that you know, do what you may. There's Bear Stearns deals. There's other kind of deals. Obviously, there was the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch. But that was but after Lehman. Lehman that, was bankrupt. Off, that was after Lehman, right? It was Lehman. kind of at the same time. Right. They were announced on the same day, right? That Bank of America was buying Merrill Lynch and the bankruptcy of Lehman was were announced at the same time. It happened over the same weekend. Right. And I think the view of the government was we solved all the problems. We took these two investment banks. One of them filed for bankruptcy, fine, we'll deal with it, and, and the other one's being acquired and everything's okay. They didn't understand at all what a bankruptcy of one of the major banks would mean. They, they had such little understanding of it that they didn't even know that it was going to put AIG into bankruptcy two days later. And we warned them, said this is massive wealth destruction. There was something at the time, and, and I'm sorry that this gets so technical, it was basically, uh, they're called credit default swaps. It was a big part of the story. Um, it meant you could really buy insurance on the debt of a company so that if the company went bankrupt, someone who provided that insurance would pay you out. So everyone said, okay, Lehman, you know, not sure they'll survive. The government said, you can go manage your risk. Right? There's ways to do it. And everybody bought credit default swaps. Nobody thought about who was providing the credit default swaps and whether they could stand behind all of that obligation if Lehman went bankrupt. It's kind of like saying, I'm not worried that there's going to be a massive hurricane that hits Florida because everybody has insurance. Without saying, well, wait a minute. It's kind of really one company that wrote all these insurance policies, and they're never going to be able to pay off. So we're going to have a big problem. They didn't even understand that very first impact, the first and, domino. 
that would would happen. And you you guys did understand that we your, did. your the the insurance against your credit default swaps was not heavily diversified across many yes. insurance companies. Yes. Yeah. We understood. That sounds like a pretty grave error for for you know Geithner and Paulson to make. Right? I mean, they were the ones there, right? I mean, yeah. That, well, they didn't do any analysis. Um, when I when we talked about, it, I said we 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 said to some of the authors who wrote the books, go look the Freedom of Information Act. If there's any analysis out there of what happens if a Lehman or any bank like that goes bankrupt, you know, a lot of the market was. The real fundamental problem on Wall Street, and we're going to have to do round two of this because there's so much we can talk about, Alex. Right, right, the right. fundamental problem on Wall Street. We'll, we'll transition this again, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I had to give you airtime on this, and I, I know. And, and I'll just explain it quickly. Yeah. So anybody who studied business would would understand this issue. We had long term assets, right, and short term liabilities, liabilities that really were on an overnight basis. So every night, we lent money to J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan lent money to City, City to Bank of America, bringing all the other farm banks. Everyone was lending money to each other. Once that circle got broken, once that trust got broken, nobody was lending money to anyone. So that's why this guarantee of debt was so important. The markets completely froze up. Right. And all that liquidity that was the basis for all of the funding of the banks, the way they funded their assets every single night, dried up. And so the bankruptcies would have extended just continuously. It would have been City, it would have been Bank of America, it would have been GE, because they were very reliant on short-term paper. Right. So that the consequences would have so, been so big, and, and, and nobody in the government was in a position to understand that or, or had thoroughly analyzed it. Because the decision around Lehman was not a financial one. It wasn't an economic one. It was a political one. And it was misguided. And it was more about individuals protecting themselves and their reputation than understanding what they were potentially doing to the old Right, world. right, right. So there is a re- – and, and some animosity towards Dick Fold, I think. That's on the yeah, line. I don't it think was- that was much of it. There were, there were other issues. I'll kind of keep this around too. All right. But right, right. Were, All right. We're gonna, we're, we're, oh. Let's come back. Let's come back to it. I knew it was opening a Pandora's box, but it's so are. So there's so, a lot. So the story is so very different. But the narrative. I gave you a piece of it. The narrative is you're the chief investment officer of Lehman Private Equity. Private equity business. Yeah. Private equity business. Uh, probably, a, I would guess at Lehman Brothers, a pretty substantial business. Yeah, we had. Uh, most of those businesses have gone on in. Uh, different forms in different places to be quite successful. We had a venture capital business. We had a merchant banking business. We had a fund of funds business, a secondary fund. Right. Those have ended up in places like um, Newberger, where so they right. raise funds and do very well. So you, they were very strong. That's nice. Businesses. As as in, as independent franchises, but but so you've so so what happens is you shift. From this to Barclays, and 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 you, I'm actually the one who signed the agreement on behalf of Lehman Brothers to sell it to Barclays. Oh, interesting! That's a cool story. It is. It's partly because I was the only one around at four o'clock in the morning when it needed to be signed, who was authorized to do so, as we were one all night or after another. But um, yes, we did that, and we took it through the bankruptcy court and got approved. Really, you know, it all happened within a week. Yeah, that's a. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that week pretty well. Um, so we, well, let's we're definitely going to come back to this because it's such a it's such compelling and important material. I'm really struck, Steve. I know you, of course, in the context only in the last year, as someone who's really committing like his whole professional life. It feels like to climate, even down to the way in which you participated in the Biden campaign. Um, you know, it's just all all of your tentacles feel very climate oriented your niece worked for us you know because she was interested in business and climate right i mean she's passionate about it so um you, tell me how you got from i'm running this vast portfolio of financial businesses at the one of the world's most prestigious investment banks to 
you know, you know, 15 years later, not quite 15 years later, I spend my energy on climate. Yeah, and, and so a big part of the story was being chief investment officer at Lehman Brothers was really one of three full-time jobs I had at Lehman at the same time. So I was also running all of the transaction approval committees. Anyone who's been involved in banking would call commitment committees. It was approving all the IPOs we were doing and the bridge loans, the financial sponsors on LBOs. And I was also managing at the time uh, legal and compliance, which was about you know 800 people overall on a global basis. So I didn't have much time to much of anything other than focused on all these responsibilities at Lehman. When the bankruptcy happened, and uh, I moved over to Barclays after you know a pretty extensive transition period, meaning dealing with all of the issues that were bankruptcy related, dealing with getting um, the new burger business to be independent and all the employee transition issues and all the rest of it. Um, that's when you sort of moved into 2009, this kind of strange year. But it also, for me, allowed me to give up um, <laughs> at least two of the jobs that I had um, and really a, a good portion of the third and kind of gave me a fresh start to look at what I wanted to do. So I was still running some of these transaction approval committees, but I had this opportunity, as I mentioned, to look at what the large corporations were and say, you know, there's a, a bigger opportunity here. and it's helping some of these larger companies in this energy transition. We didn't really use that term at the time, but this clean tech effort. So we started a clean tech coverage effort at Barclays. Wow. So what I year started, was that? What year that would have been around 2010. Wow. Now at the same time, you've got the DOE uh, putting money into companies like Tesla and on the positive side and Solyndra on the negative side. And, You'll remember a lot of the news around that, but the DOE put a lot of money into renewable energy at the time. That was a big part of the, that first 1.0 growth because you had these government grants, which are really helpful to these businesses that are very capital intensive. It's hard to raise that money in the private capital market. Well, you, I'm sure you saw that Jigger Shah uh, does yes. this really significant job. He he was one of our first guests on 0.01. And he's taking over that effort that started um, – after the 2008 financial crisis when Obama and Biden came in. So it's a continuation of that. It's kind of, yeah. you know, he's been around and doing it, but it's now an opportunity to, to build back better and put a lot more money and energy into it. And I'm not sure how much it was done over the last four years. I mean, I, exactly. I, I, I think I, I tell people all the time that I think Jigger, hiring Jigger Shah is the story of why elections have consequences. Yep. I mean, it has and by the way, it slowed down. It slowed down quite a bit under Obama, too, because there was a lot of, of criticism that came out of the Solyndra bankruptcy, uh, one yeah. that the government had put a lot of money into. Uh, that, again, is a separate story. So I had this opportunity to do new things. I started covering clean tech companies. I also had the opportunity to do more on the not-for-profit side because I had more capacity. And it was around then that I joined the board of the Sierra Club Foundation where I had six years on the board, three years as chair of the board, and then we have term limits, so I, I came off. So I was right in the middle of the environmental effort, too, to solve all of these climate crisis things, which converged with the coverage on the clean tech side and speaking to all of these entrepreneurs and all these companies that were looking for solutions. Can, can, you, just solutions. Tell people, can you just tell people for our younger audience here, what was the Sierra Club in the environmental movement? So, so the Sierra Club, which started in the, like 1892 or so, um, with, a, with a naturalist named John Muir, who actually introduced Teddy Roosevelt to a lot of the great outdoors. And, and the Is that how we have great... national parks? Yes, yes. Wow. And, and so there's a good story with Ken Burns. He did the documentary. It's Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir together in maybe Yosemite Valley or something like that. And, and that led to the creation of the first park, first national park in Yellowstone, first national park in the world, really. Um, and some people say it's one of America's best inventions, the national park system, which has been you know, copied, replicated, a model for, for national parks throughout the world. But what, what the Sierra Club was, 
was for many, many years, you know, probably into the 1960s, was about preserving wilderness, protecting wildlife in, in the United States. And it was the largest grassroots environmental movement in the country. It still is the largest organization with like 3 million or so members or supporters, if I have that, that number correct. Um, so it, had, it has chapters in all 50 states, sub-chapters in many of the states. It works on a lot of the activities recently to close the coal plants out there, which are not just an issue for the climate crisis. They're an issue around pollution, too. So the Sierra Club is this, is this really interesting, kind of complicated organization with a real grassroots effort, um, with a club that can be political and a foundation, which I was on the board of, which is non-political, which is a 501c3 charitable organization. But in the, it, it went from protecting wilderness and wildlife to, in the 60s, really kind of fighting what at the time was the issue, pollution, right? It was air pollution, it was water pollution, um, it was the Endangered Species Act. You know, in the early 70s, all these laws were passed, very ironically, under Richard Nixon. Um, that protected everything from endangered species, to marine mammals, to clean water, to clean air. And that was the focus for a while until the environmental movement began to realize also, you know, along with the scientists, that there was something bigger at stake. Not that, you know, pollution doesn't matter, we don't want to burn coal because it puts all sort of noxious things into the air and has very direct and very adverse health consequences. But we then moved from an organization that was still have a foot in protecting wilderness, still have a foot in anti-pollution, but we've got two hands around the climate crisis, right? right. That, that's what the organization is doing now. So as your banking career is proceeding, you're starting to spend a lot more time with the Sierra Club. And it's changing your worldview in what ways? I mean, how does it, this clearly becomes sort of foundational to this phase of your career. Yeah, and, and there's other not-for-profits I'm involved in, too. Um, one I'm still involved with called Green City Force, which was training you know, young people in New York City coming out of the affordable housing um, program in New York for jobs in the green economy. Um, it was on the board of BSR, Business for Social Responsibility. It was, it was all of these things moving together. And, and something Aaron, you and I haven't had a chance as I'm focused on the climate crisis, the other big issue that I'm focused on is what's now been called the future of work. At the start, we just said, how much is technology impacting jobs, right, and the value of work? Another big issue. So, so I was sort of given this platform, and I'm very appreciative to Barclays for that. I was given the autonomy to be involved in these activities, to speak about them a lot, and also to spend time on focusing on covering these clean tech companies. And the third piece of it, which was interesting and a good perspective, is I became responsible for the, the reputation risk process at the bank so that we would take a look at certain businesses and say, is this something we want to be associated with? And so when everywhere from working on, on This the is probably the beginning of that. Well, you know, it was, it was often done in a implicit way in the transaction approval process, but it became more explicit. We're saying, do we want to be associated with this type of business or doing business or doing work in this country that has issues, human rights violations, or with these individuals, right? There were all series of issues. But you you would discuss everything from coal to payday lending to private prisons to um, cryptocurrency to cannabis, right? all of these things that raised issues. And we said, if we're going to do something in the cannabis industry, what's it going to be and how are we going to do it, right? And, and sometimes you just say, no, you know, if it's payday lending or if it's eventually became private prisons, became something that was toxic, um, guns, all of these things were a subject of debate. So it was all of those things together in, in, a, in a, I'd say, a converging way of, how can banks, how can Wall Street, how can capitalism be redirected to solve some of these big problems we have of climate, 
of inequality and injustice, right, of job creation, all of these things together. And, you know, it's where I kind of still see myself. The climate crisis is, is critically important, but so is the need to have good paying jobs for people, right? So is the need to deal with all of the inequality that we have in our society um, in, in every sense of the word, in healthcare and education and housing and income and wealth and opportunity. You know, it, it's really, I, I would say, again, for another podcast, the story of America now is the story of inequality. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, you're certainly seeing some some major changes at the federal level in terms of inequality. Let's talk about, you know, you're on the you're on so many boards, you advise a number of companies. Give us a sense of where your optimism has gone in terms of our ability to solve climate problems sort of over the last decade. Right? You've you've had a you've had a, a quite front row seat. You know, you were an investment banker for 30 years, a very central leader in, in two investment banks, and thinking a lot about the energy business as, as, as well as other sectors. And now, for the last couple of years, you've really had a chance to be on the ground with, you did a nonprofit sequence in there as well, and now you're really on the ground with a lot of privately held companies. Uh, you spend a lot of time interfacing between privately held and uh, companies and venture capital um, give people a sense of, of the arc of your optimism. All right, well, or, since or, or, the, or, 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 or the opposite of which, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's the graph? You, how about the, what is the graph of your optimism? Well, okay, so since you use the word arc, you know, there's that Martin Luther King quote, the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Correct. And I'd say I agree with that. It, I just don't think it bends far enough and fast enough, right? I think the same thing can be said about how we're dealing with the climate crisis. And I'm, I'm very, I try to be very careful about calling it the climate crisis, not calling it climate change or global warming, right? Change, you know, many say change is inevitable, it could be good or bad. For some places, climate change is going to be a positive. You know, if they're up in Saskatchewan or parts of Russia, they, they, this climate change thing is great, you know, in terms of their lives um, in terms of, you know, opportunities for agriculture and things like that. In other places, it's awful. So, it's, it, But it's a climate crisis. It's the volatility. It's the extremes that we're not going to have enough time to adapt to, to manage our way through. And certainly other species and ecosystems aren't going to either. And so I don't know that I would ever character myself, myself as an optimist. I, feeling this from someone else who said it first, and it really resonated with me. I kind of view myself as a cheerful pessimist. I don't know that we're going to solve the climate crisis. I, I think we can do a large amount to mitigate it, to keep it from getting as bad as it theoretically could be. Um, I think a lot of the companies I'm working with will be successful. They have great solutions, and they're innovative, and they're mostly technology-based, and they're very necessary. But I don't know when you add them all up together, it's going to be enough to keep us from having really severe consequences as a planet right. and so from the climate crisis. And we have to figure out quickly how to deal with that. I think already we've seen signs of it with the people at, you know, at the southern border coming up from Central America because they can't farm for a living anymore. Um, what's happened in North Africa and the Middle East and, and, and all of those climate refugees moving into Europe and how that's led to a lot of the right-wing movement in Europe and have places from Germany to Sweden to Brexit. You know, a lot of it has to do with people from, you know, around the equator, you know, from the southern part of the planet, moving up north and, and changing um, those countries in a certain way that some people may not be comfortable with it, and they're pushing back. And that's with the relatively modest amount of climate refugees. Right, right. So let's, let's, so that's interesting, right? So no matter what the, all these terrific 
innovative companies, Tesla being the archetype, but, you know, companies like Therma and, uh, you know, Kula Bio and Teradactu and all these companies I've had on the podcast, everybody's working on really interesting things from carbon sequestration to circular economy to Im improving the cold chain to uh, figuring out a better way to manage methane emissions. Um, so many interesting innovations and the net net in your view, you know, in your, you know, you, your hypothesis could be, wow, I'm not sure it's enough. Does this for you mean that we're not paying attention to the coming enormous migrant crisis or and a sort of people dislocation that's going to come from climate change? And we need, some of us in the climate movement need to be supportive of policy initiatives or we need different kinds of, can we do private sector innovation? around the this because you don't see a lot of private sector companies saying hey here's how we're going to deal with the migrant crisis yeah right? i think that's one of it we could we could spend the rest of this podcast talking about that issue but it's very hard to see a scenario where a country like bangladesh survives right in its present form where a good portion of that country is below sea level right right we have this I problem was, with South Pacific Islands as well. I mean, yeah, you know, those will just be swallowed up. But Bangladesh will just be, you know, flooded so frequently with storms that it's not habitable. It also will be getting really, really hot there, too. And, and you've got 170 million people. That's half the size of the United States in the size, in, in an area the size of Iowa. You may have to have most of those people, if not all, move somewhere else. Where are they going to go? We haven't even started to think about the solutions for that. Um, you know, the, the way the, the extreme weather continues, the areas that before people could make a living with agriculture that they won't be able to. Um, migrant migration, climate migration, is going to be one of the most serious consequences of this. And we're, we're just not prepared. Um, to just open our doors to people from other countries. As we all know, we know what is being debated every day. It continues to be a, a very big problem for the Biden administration right now, how to deal with all of this. You know, I, th I think that's one of, of many issues we're going to have to come to terms with. You know, people are starting to talk about managed retreat, right? sort of trying to manage people away from the coastline and bringing everything back in. But just think about what it would take to do that. I, there's no shortage of, of terrific ideas. You know, problems we have in the United States with all our grand ambitions is to do anything requires years of planning and permitting and resolving lawsuits, right, and, and the whole NIMBY movement, a lot of which is going to be funded by the people who, it's not their backyard they're worried about. It's their economic interests who will provide the funding to say, hey, we won't have more renewable energy because we're happier selling you oil and gas. So, you know, to me, we've got to do things really quickly. And what we wind up doing is saying, congratulations to all these corporations who have made net zero commitments by 2050. And we don't have time for them to kind of wait around for 20 years and then figure out how they're going to be net zero by 2050. We need them to move as fast as possible and try to be close to net zero by 2030. But yet, yeah. we, we, you know, we're all happy to just have them commit that by 30 years. And you know what? There's a CEO of a company who says, between me and 2050, there's four or five more CEOs. Right. I don't really have to do anything here, but just say, yeah, we're committed to yeah, yeah. Do you think we're not hard enough on the companies talking the 2050 game? I mean, it's interesting because they get credit. They do get some credit for it. Yesterday, I was talking to someone who told me that Tesco, which I think is like the stop and shop of, of, of the UK at minimum, has committed to be uh, net zero by 2025. I, and, I, I, and I was like, wow. That's yeah, and so not the question year, becomes. That's not a year you hear. No, and, and good good for them. Um, you'd have to just dig into what that means. I mean, if anybody's interested, I would tell them to go look at the climate statement from Microsoft. It's really well thought out. It's very genuine. There's scope one, scope two, scope three. 
um, carbon emissions that they're not only trying to, to net to zero, but they want to get to negative so they can account for all the emissions that they already had to date. And, you know, Microsoft, with, with all of their data centers and everything like that, is pretty it's a big number. Um, so, yes, I, to, I couldn't agree with you more, Aaron. I think you said it in, in almost too gentle of a way. We give these companies way too much credit for the commitments they're making around 2050. We need much more urgent action than that. Um, and we really need transparency around. A lot of them are going to get to net zero by buying carbon offsets. Okay. That might have a lot of potential, but only if they're quality carbon offsets. They're really additive. They're really permanent. If they really are taking degraded land and turning it into healthy um, grasslands, for instance, which should store an enormous amount of carbon. There's a lot of interesting ideas out there. Um, but, you know, it, it takes some time to kind of say, are you really doing something that makes a difference? Is moving us in the right direction? Or is this just a way to kind of jump on the bandwagon and say, yeah, we'll be there in 2052. And by then, you know, no one will remember the commitments were made in 2020 or 2021. Um, you know, bigger issues and, and we'll be in a completely different place. So I, I think that I, I do think we're giving them way too credit and we're way too easy on them. I, I, I imagine that if we had, you know, I don't know, the CEOs of, I don't know, let's say Unilever or Nestle's or GM, all of whom have made net zero commitments far off in the distance, they would say it's simply not possible to get there faster. Like we are too fossil fuel dependent. There won't be enough, you know, you can talk all you want about renewable energy, but there won't be enough of it manufactured for us to use it. They, you know, like we can't get to EV trucks fast enough, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, I assume there's a narrative that builds yeah, in the same. There is, and, and I'm, not, I'm not actually disagreeing with that. I just feel like a lot of these companies, they're not going to do anything for 20 years. Right, and, and then they're going to say, "Okay, now how do we make that? Remember that so, net zero commitment? What are we doing now?" Right? <laughs> right, we've got a decade. But but then there's the others that say, "You know what? If I got to get, if I have my emissions now, I'm going to get them down ten percent this year and ten percent the next, and I'm going to keep on lowering it down and get closer and closer to that goal." Net zero old way, especially when you talk about scope three, is really really challenging for these companies, which is why we do need time legitimate carbon offset market too because we, we need better sinks and people are thinking about certain things in a different way which is interesting I, you know I spoke to a company last week that is looking to make more plastics out of plants right you know and, and when you kind of play that forward this takes some open-minded thinking because we don't like plastics we hate them they end up in the oceans and you know, in landfills, they never go away. Well, wait a minute, they never go away. So if we, we grow all these plants, hemps and bamboos and things like that, and we use them to make plastics, and they are part of the, I don't know, we use 3 billion bottle caps a day, right? And we can take all of those bottle caps that were made out of plant-based plastics and, unfortunately, dig some big holes, stick them all in there, cover it up, we are sequestering that carbon for thousands of years, right? Because we're talking about now, you know, biomass, carbon removal and storage. And so there's ideas like that too, but we, you know, we have to recognize that perfect is the enemy of good. We need all of these solutions. You know, every, every solar farm may result in some trees that, are knocked down and wind turbines might impact some wildlife that's out there. And we have to look at, at net benefits and, and right. do an honest calculation of them and recognize that there are no perfect solutions. We actually need literally billions of solutions to, to solve this. Yeah. Um, and then we also need to start thinking about what's going to happen as we don't entirely solve it, as, we, as the climate does change and become more volatile. We have this crisis to deal with. How we're going to deal with the, with the consequences of that? Steve, um, this is super fun. I, I I I can see I want to have you back like every week. We might have to have you do a guest uh, get a, a weekly guest spot or something like that. Um, in our remaining time, 
can you hit people with some, and I've never asked this question. This is like a classic podcast question that I've literally never asked, but I'm asking you because of who you are. How, how do people get smarter? What do they read? What can we turn people on to? Um, you know, whether they're 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60, right? I mean, what can we turn them on to, to come up the curve and stay on the curve, right? What are the reading habits that, that we'd like to get people doing because it might spur them into more innovative thinking, different career paths, uh, just more knowledge, make Thanksgiving more interesting, whatever it is. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm trying not to give you the pat answer, like read the New York Times or the read Guardian. Elizabeth, read Elizabeth Colbert or, or <laughs> you know, yeah, and, New Yorker. And, and, I, and I think it's, you know what, I'm going to give you a couple of different answers here. I, I actually think it's worthwhile not to just read, you know, the New Yorker. Bill McKibben is great. That's a necessary read every week. You know, even today when he's talking about the voting rights and all that, it's he, he's essential reading. But I actually would for say, those who don't know, for just to tell people, for those who don't know, he writes the climate newsletter for the New Yorker. Uh, he's long. He's really the godfather of climate journalists, and has yes. been to my has been to my NYU class, and we have to get him on the podcast. Yeah, and, and I would say going to read one thing, read that. But what I, I, I think my answer to this uh, is read more fiction about this. Pick up some of these dystopian novels, you know, uh, The Parable of the Sower, right? Um, I just read a couple this past year, one called The Resistors. I could come up with a list of, of these novels. And watch some of these movies too, like the original Snowpiercer or something like that, and recognize the dystopian future that's possible if we don't deal with it, right? Yeah. You've got to have that image in your head. I have to admit that I am a big fan of zombie movies and TV shows, right? Not that I'm Make truly worried about zombies or in a zombie apocalypse, but I'm worried about apocalypse of different types, yeah. right? And and they can happen in many different ways. They can be really severe pandemics. Um, they can be cyber-related, nuclear-related. There's all sorts of things that can happen. But a lot of it could be climate crisis-related. And I would say that, you know, don't take these novels or these movies as gospel, as, as truth, but allow yourself, in terms of getting smarter out this, or maybe the better way to put it, get more sensitive about this, to be able to visualize what a world looks like, what a Mad Max world looks like if we don't get it right, and how that's just not an option, right? right. Well, so we, can even we need to start figuring out what could lead to those things, what path are we on, and to change direction dramatically. So I'm, I don't know that that's the answer. I could name, you know, other things. I read regularly. I mean, Bloomberg has a pretty good daily newsletter that people can get uh, on all things green and climate related. There's a lot of stuff out there, but I think it's worthwhile for people to kind of have a, that image in their head. If we don't get this right, if we don't fix this, where are we headed? And everyone's got, you know, it's a vision of the future. Maybe somewhat right, not right at all, but I find those stories have been helpful to me in getting to be sort of more focused and more passionate on all. So you make, um, I, I think, you know, your, your point about the fiction is, is a really interesting one. And I don't think it's a huge leap to think about the 170 million Bangladeshis in the context of these, these, um, these fiction pieces. I mean, you know, for, you know, most, most, Americans today come up with some Holocaust history as an example. They're probably more likely to know about the Holocaust than, uh, say, the massacres or incredible genocide in Cambodia um, or Rwanda. But we, it, this is, this is a, a civilization, a global civilization that is not unfamiliar with genocide, but nothing like 170 million people. Nothing like that. That has not happened. 
And the reality is, if we have to relocate 170 million people, many of them are going to die. That is the global policy now. That, that's where we are. We are not, as, as a set of, 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 civil, of nations, going to accept 170 million immigrants or even 100 million immigrants. You know, well, we're having problems. With, we with, can't absorb Syria's immigrants. We're, we're having problems with hundreds of thousands. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and the U.S. is having problem with tens of thousands. Exactly. So, so, so the we're talking about multiple orders of magnitude here, in uh, within a thirty to seventy-five year period. That's kind of where we're headed, conceivably. Right. And you know, we, we it's absolutely wrong for us to say not our problem because we are the ones who really contributed more to this climate crisis than any other country. For in sure our that. emissions, in our emissions per capita, and how long we've done it, both on a on a gross, a gross, and on a current pro rata basis. Right. We, we've got major challenges in that we're all in this together, and you know, I'm stunned by uh, just how small China and India's cold chain is relative to their population. When you look at, I mean, we've got some new stuff on that, Stephen. It's just breathtaking. And you just look at it and you go, "Wait a minute! People have a right to have fresh food and medicine." Right. Of course, these countries are going to want to treat their their citizens with, uh, you know, give them a chance to live longer lives. And and so we uh, what's coming is a lot more emissions, not always for terrible reasons. And and so we've got real, real uh, structural problems. Yeah, uh, And that is a big issue. It's not so much population growth. It's resource use per person growth. Correct. It'd be much bigger, much more, a lot more energy and electricity and plastics and way food um, is changing and eating habits. Right. So in order to, in order to provide for everybody, we're just going to continue to emit tremendous amounts of energy and 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 resources. And so, uh, it is something that um, is this generation. I mean, you know, like. I almost wonder how you can get out of college today and not work on this. Yep. Like, I mean, I really do. Like, and at some level, you've made some good points about how public health and climate change are so related. There's many ways to be a part of our climate community. And I, I think there's such great work out there. And, and uh, um, it's just been a pleasure having you, Stephen. We're clearly going <laughs> no, to have you back. Do we have to end it already? Or you got to keep it to a certain limit, huh? I, 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 well, I'm told I have to keep it to a certain limit, but I, I may change up my format for you. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot more for us to talk about, but um, let's start with, yeah, let's get everyone to accept the seriousness of this issue. Yeah, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Aaron. I really enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date with Stephen Birkenfeld, follow him on Twitter at Stephen Birkenfeld. Today's podcast is presented by Thermo, a smart refrigeration monitoring company. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to Point One Podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at Point One Podcasts or on the web at climate.hellotherma.com.